Hey yo. <laughs> okay, wait. I don't know how this is gonna work. Cause I'm kind of quiet and it sounds like I'm talking to myself. Which I guess I am. But I was gonna read after 13. And then it didn't happen. So I'm gonna read as much as chapter 12 as I can at once. Unless I figure out like how to edit, you know? Unless I really hate how my voice sounds. Unless then I won't do anything with it. Oh no. The chapter looks awful. Maybe I don't want to read this. Jeez. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> oh no. Oh, we'll try it anyways. Do we really think the first page is important? How important do we think the first page is? I say we skip it completely. Yeah, let's let's give it. <laughs> okay, but chapter twelve, if you didn't know, is motivation and work. Wait, let me put this down somewhere. Can you even hear me? I'm being so quiet. <laughs> I say quiet like a whispering. Okay. I feel like that's worse, but whatever. This is page what page is it? Four seventy. If you feel like following along. This is so bad. Perspectives on motivation. We have seen that- Okay. Oh. <laughs> Alright. Okay. We have seen that psychologists today define- <laughs> Define motivation as a need or desire that energizes and directs behavior. Let's step back now and consider four perspectives psychologists have used in their attempt to understand- Motivated behaviors. These include instinct theory, in parentheses, now replaced by the evolutionary perspective, drive reduction theory, in parentheses, oh wait, I didn't even end the parentheses before, okay. <laughs> Emphasizing the interaction between inner pushes and external pulls, in parentheses, and arousal theory, in parentheses. Emphasizing the urge for an optimum level of stimulation and parentheses the fourth perspective abraham maslow's hierarchy of needs describes how some motivations if unsatisfied more basic and compelling than others oh <laughs> i forgot to read a word next one instincts and in evolutionary psychology early in the 20th century as the influencer of charles doran's <laughs> evolutionary theory grew it became fashionable to classify all sorts of behaviors and instincts. <laughs> the way I can't read is really, really good. If people criticize themselves, it was because of their self- <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce that word! Abasement instinct. <laughs> if they boasted, it reflected their self-assertion instinct. After scanning 500 books, one sociologist compiled a list of 5,759 supposed human instincts. Before long, this fad for naming instincts collapsed under its own weight. Rather than explaining human behaviors, the early instinct theorists were simply naming them. It was like explaining a bright child's low grades by labeling the child an underachiever. To name a behavior is not to explain it. To qualify as an instinct, this is in bold, 
the word is important. Oh wait, motivation was important too. <laughs> a complex behavior must have a fixed pattern throughout a species and, to, and be unlearned. Such behaviors are common in other species. In parentheses, oh wait, is this word important? No, it's not. Human behavior too exhibits certain innate tendencies, including simple fixed patterns such as an infant's rooting and sucking. Most psychologists, though, view human behavior as directed by psychological needs and by psychological wants. Although instinct theory failed to explain human motives, the underlying assumption that genes predispose species' typical behavior remains as strong as ever. We saw this in Chapter 3's explanation of our human similarities. We saw this again in Chapter 8's discussion of animals' biological predispositions to learn certain behaviors. And we will see later in discussions of how evolution might influence our phobias, our helping behaviors, and our romantic attractions. This one is derives in incentives. When the original instinct theory of motivation collapsed, it was replaced by drive reduction theory. The idea that a psychological need creates an aroused state that drives the organism to reduce the speed by, say, eating or drinking, with few exceptions, when a psychological, no, sociological, I think I've been saying psychological and it keeps saying sociological, so replace all those. <laughs> when the sociological need increases, so it is a psychological drive, an aroused motivated state, the sociological, wait, physiological aim of drive reduction is homeostasis. The maintenance of a steady internal state. An example of homeostasis, literally staying the same, is the body's temperature regulation system, which works like a thermostat. Both systems operate through feedback loops. Sensors feed room temperature to a control device. If the room temperature cools, the control device switches on the furnace. Likewise, if our body temperature cools, blood vessels constrict to conserve warmth and we feel driven to put on more clothes or seek a warmer environment. Similarly, if the water level in our cells drop, sensors detect our need for water and we feel thirsty. Not only are we pushed by our need to reduce stress, we are also pulled by incentives, positive or negative stimuli that lower or repel us. This is one way our individual learning histories influence our motives. Depending on our learning, the aroma of good food, whether fresh roasted peanuts or toasted ants, <laughs> can motivate our behavior. <laughs> what? Toasted ants. Alright. So, can the sight of someone we find attractive or the threat of disapproval from family or friends? When there is both a need and an incentive, we feel strongly driven. The food-deprived person who smells baking bread feels a strong hunger drive. In the presence of that drive, the baking bread becomes a compelling incentive. For each motive, we can therefore ask, how is it pushed by our inborn physiological needs and pulled by incentives in the environment? Optimum arousal. <laughs> we are much more than homeostatic systems. However... 
some motivated <laughs> behaviors actually increase arousal. Well-fed animals will leave their shelter to explore, seemingly in the absence of any need-based drive. From taking such risks, animals gain information and resources. Curiosity drives monkeys to monkey around, trying to figure out how to unlock a latch that opens nothing, or how to open a window that allows them to see outside their room. It drives a nine-month-old infant who investigates every accessible corner of the house. It drives a scientist whose work this text discusses. And it drives explorers and adventurers such as Aaron Ralston. Asked why he wanted to climb Mount Everest, George Malroy answered, because it is there. <laughs> Those who like Malroy and Ralston enjoy high arousal are most likely to enjoy tense music, novel foods, and risky behaviors. How crazy of them. Okay. So, human motivation aims not to eliminate arousal, but to seek optimum levels of arousal. Having our biological needs satisfied, we feel driven to experience stimulation. Lacking stimulation, we feel bored, and look for a way to increase arousal to some optimum level. However, with too much stimulation comes stress, and when we then look for a way to decrease arousal. A hierarchy of motives! <laughs> Some needs take priority over others. At this moment, with your needs for air and water satisfied- wait, am I supposed to read this? Do I always read these? I do. Kidding. <laughs> wait, now I have to find my place again. At this moment, with your needs for air and water satisfied, other motives, such as your desire to achieve... Do I always read these? <laughs> okay, never mind. Wait. Hmm. I'll keep reading anyways. <laughs> other motives, such as your desire to achieve, are energizing and directing your behavior. Let your need for water go unsatisfied and your thirst will preoccupy you. Just ask Aaron Walston. But if you were deprived of air, your thirst would disappear. Abraham Maslow, 1970, described these priorities as a hierarchy of needs. At the base of this pyramid are physiological needs, such as those for food and water. Only if these needs are met are we promoted to meet our need for safety, and then to satisfy the e un uniquely human needs to give and receive love and to enjoy self-esteem. Beyond this, said Maslow, 1971, lies the highest of human needs to actualize one's full potential. More on self-esteem and self-actualization in chapter 15. Maslow's hierarchy is somewhat arbitrary. The order of such needs is not universally fixed. People have starved themselves to make a political statement. Nevertheless, the simple idea that some motives are compelling or more compelling than others provides a framework for thinking about motivation and life satisfactory surveys in 39 nations support this basic idea. Let me move my phone. <laughs> 11 minutes. That's crazy. Okay. Wait, where was I? In poor nations that lack easy access to money and the food and shelter it buys. Financial satisfaction more strongly predicts subjective well-being. In wealthy nations, where most are able to meet basic needs, 
Home life satisfaction is a better predictor. Self-esteem matters most in individualist nations, whose citizens tend to focus more on personal achievements than on family and community identity. Let's now consider four representative motives, beginning at the basic, physiological level, with hunger and working up through sexual motivation, to the higher level needs to be long and to achieve. At each level, we shall see how environmental factors interact with what is physiologically given. Hunger. <laughs> A vivid demonstration of the supremacy of physiological needs came from starvation experiences in World War II prison camps. David Mandel, a Nazi concentration camp survivor, recalled how a starving, in parentheses, thought, no, quote, <laughs> father and son would fight over a piece of bread like dogs, end quote. One father, whose 20-year-old son stole his bread from under his pillow while he slept, went into a deep depression, asking over and over how his son could do such a thing. The next day, the father died. Quote, Hunger does something to the you that's hard to describe, end quote, Mandel explained. To learn more about the results of semi-starvation, scientist Ansel Keys and his colleagues fed 36 male volunteers. All of jesters to the wall. Just enough to maintain their initial weight. Then for six months, they cut this food level in half. The effects soon became visible. Without thinking about it, the men began conserving energy. They appeared listless and apathetic. Their body weights dropped rapidly, eventually stabilizing at about 25% below their starting weights. But the psychological effects were especially dramatic. Consistent with Maslow's idea of needs hierarchy, the men became obsessed with food. They talked food. They daydreamed food. They collected recipes, read cookbooks, and feasted their eyes on delectable forbidden foods. At the same time, they lost interest in sex and social activities. They became preoccupied with the unfulfilled basic need. As one participant reported, if we see a show, the most interesting part of it is contained in scenes where people are eating. I couldn't laugh at the funniest picture in the world, and love scenes are completely dull. The physiology, physiology of hunger. <laughs> Keys starvation volunteers felt their hunger in response to a homeostatic system. Have I been saying that right? Um, sure. Designed to maintain normal body weight and an adequate nutrient supply. But what precisely triggers hunger? Is it the pangs of an empty stomach? This is how it feels. And so it seemed after A.L. Washburn, working with Walter Cannon, intentionally swallowed a balloon. When inflated in his stomach, the balloon transmitted his stomach contractions to a recording device. While his stomach was being monitored, Washburn pressed a key each time he felt hungry. The discovery? Washburn was indeed having stomach contractions whenever he felt hungry. Would hunger persist without stomach pangs? Researchers answered that question early in the 20th century when they removed some rats' stomachs and attached their esophagi to their small intestines. Did the rats continue to eat? Indeed they did. 
Some hunger persists similarly in humans who ulcerated or cancerous stomachs have been removed. You and I can feel some hunger even on a full stomach. So can animals that fill their stomachs by eating low-calorie food. They will eat even more than... Wait, what? They will eat more than animals that consume a less filling, high-calorie diet. If the pangs of an empty stomach are not the only source of hunger, what else matters? Body chemicals and brain states offer some insights. Body chemistry and the brain. People and other animals automatically regulate their caloric intake to prevent energy deficits and maintain a stable body weight. This suggests that the body is somehow, somewhere, keeping tabs on its available resources. One such resource is the blood, wait what? Blood sugar glucose. Blood sugar glucose. Anyways, increases in the hormone insulin Diminished blood glucose, partly by converting it to stored fat. Your body is normally adept at maintaining its blood glucose level. But if that level drops, your hunger increases. You do not consciously feel this change in your blood chemistry. Rather, your brain is automatically monitoring your body's internal state. Signals from your stomach, intestines, and liver. Huh? All signal your brain to motivate eating or not. But where is the brain? Where in the brain are these messages integrated? During the 1940s and 1950s, researchers located hunger controls within the hypothalamus, a small but complex neural traffic intersection buried deep in the brain. Actually, two distinct hypothalamic centers help control eating. Experiments during the 1960s suggested the activity along the sides of the hypothalamus, in parentheses, the lateral hypothalamus, in parentheses, brings on hunger. When electrically stimulated there, well-fed animals would begin to eat. When the area was destroyed, even starving animals had no interest in food. Late 20th century research helps explain this behavior. If a rat is deprived of food and its blood sugar levels wane, the lateral hypothalamus will turn out the hunger-triggering triggering hormone orexin. <laughs> when given orexin, am I reading that right? I wish I could look up how to pronounce it. <laughs> Rats became ravenously hungry. Activities in the second center the lower mid-hypothalamus depresses hunger. Wait, uh, that's not important. Stimulate this area and an animal will stop eating. Destroy it and the animal's stomach and intestines will process food more rapidly, causing it to become extremely fat. After these mid-hypothalamus lesions, lesions? Le- <laughs> Rats eat more often, produce more fat, and use less fat for energy, rather than like rather like a miser, misser, <laughs> who runs every bit of extra money to the bank and resists taking any out. This discovery also explains why some patients with tumors near the base of the brain eat excessively and become very overweight. Next page.
Wow, we're really getting somewhere, aren't we? Okay. <laughs> the hypothalamus monitors levels of body's appetite hormones. One interesting line of research is focusing on ghrelin, <laughs> a hunger-arousing hormone secreted by an empty stomach. When people have severe obesity under when people with severe obesity undergo bypass surgery that seals off part of the stomach, the remaining stomach that produces much less ghrelin and their appetite lessens. Experimental manipulation of appetite hormones has raised hopes for an appetite-reducing medication. Such a pill might counteract the body's hunger-producing chemicals, such as ghrelin, and hunger-dampening chemicals such as leptin, which is secreted by fat cells. Or perhaps it might increase levels of PYY, a digestive hormone that suppresses appetite. The recent ups and downs of excitement over PYY illustrate the intense research... The intense search for a substance that might someday be a treatment, if not a magic bullet for obesity. The initial <laughs> the initial report that PYY suppresses appetite in mice was followed by a skeptical statement from 12 laboratories reporting a big fat disappointment. The PYY finding did not replicate. But a few months later... This was followed by newer studies using different methods that did find at least a temporary appetite-suppressing effect. An older hunger theory proposes that manipulating the lateral and ventromedial hypothalamus alters the body's weight thermostat, predisposing us to keep our body at a particular weight level called its set point. When lost, wait, what? <laughs> when semi-starved rats fall below their normal weight, biological pressures act to restore the lost weight. Hunger increases and energy expenditure decreases. <laughs> if body weight rises, as happens when rats are force-fed, hunger decreases and energy expenditure increases. This stable weight towards which semi-starved and overstuffed rats return in their is their set point. In rats and humans, heredity influence body type and set point. Human bodies regulate weight through the control of food intake, energy output, and basal metabolic rate. Let's hope I'm pronouncing that right too. The rate of energy expenditure for maintaining basic body functions when the body is at rest. By the end of the 24 weeks of semi-starvation, the functions when- wait, oops. <laughs> By the end of the 24 weeks of semi-starvation, the men who participated in Key's experiment had stabled at three quarters of their normal weight. While eating half of what they previously did, the stabilization resulted from reduced energy expenditure, achieved partly by physical lethargy and partly by a 29% drop in their basal metabolic rate. In a reverse experiment, in which volunteers were overfed 1,000 calories a day for 8 weeks, those who gained the least weight tended to spend the extra caloric energy by fidgeting more. Under normal circumstances, those who fidget most, and burn more calories, weigh less than more inactive obese people. 
report James Levine and his colleagues. These researchers outfitted people with undergarments that for 10 days monitored their movements every half second. Every half second, that is crazy. Some researchers, however, doubt that the body has a precise point that drives hunger. They believe that slow, sustained changes in body weight can, for example, alter one set point. This casts doubt on the idea that our bodies have a present tendency to maintain optimum weight. Psychological factors also sometimes drive our feelings of hunger. Given unlimited access to a wide variety of tasty foods, people and other animals tend to overeat and gain weight. For all these reasons, some researchers have abandoned the idea of a biological fixed set point. They prefer the term settling point to indicate the level at which a person's weight settles in response to caloric intake and expenditure, which is influenced by environment as well as biology. What are we doing after this? Okay. The psychology of hunger. Our eagerness to eat is indeed pushed by our physiological state, our body's chemistry, and hypothalamic activity. Yet there is more to hunger than meets the stomach. This was strikingly apparent when Paul Rosen and his trickster colleagues tested two patients with amnesia who had no memory for events occurring more than a minute ago. That, wow. (laughs) If 20 minutes after eating a normal lunch, the patients were offered another, both readily consumed it. Hmm? and usually a third meal offered 20 minutes later after the second meal was finished. This suggests that part of knowing when to eat is our memory of our last meal. As time accumulates since we last ate, we anticipate eating again and start feeling hungry. Taste preference, biology or culture? Body chemistry and environmental factors together influence not only when we feel hunger, but what we feel hungry for, our taste preference. When feeling tense or depressed, Do you crave starchy, carbonated, lightened foods? (laughs) Carbohydrates help boost levels of neurotransmitter serotonin, which has calming effects. Our preferences for sweet and salty tastes are genetic and universal. Other taste preferences are conditioned, as when people given highly salted foods develop a liking for excess salt, or when People develop an aversion to a food eaten before becoming violently ill. Hmm. Crazy. Culture affects taste too. Boom. I don't know how to pronounce that. And I don't want to get it wrong. (laughs) Uh, Someone enjoys eating the eye of a camel which most North Americans would find repulsive. Similarly, most North Americans and Europeans shun dog, rat, and horse meat, all of which are prized elsewhere. Our natural wariness of things unfamiliar extends to novel foods, especially novel animal-based rather than vegetarian foods. In experiments, people have tried novel fruit drinks or ethnic foods. With repeated exposure, their appreciation for the new taste typically increases. Moreover, Exposure to one set of novel foods increases our willingness to try another. Rats, too, tend to avoid unfamiliar foods. The neophobia 
surely was adaptive for our ancestors, protecting them from potentially toxic substances. Eating disorders. Psychological influences on eating behavior are strikingly evident when a motive for abnormal thinness overwhelms normal homeostatic pressures. Two such eating disorders are anorexia nervosa and bulimia. Anorexia nervosa always begins as a weight loss diet. People with this disorder drop significantly below normal weight, typically by 15% or more, yet feel fat and remain obsessed with losing weight. Even when emaciated, the person, usually an adolescent and nine times out of ten a female, continues to limit food intake. Bulimia nervosa nearly always begins after a dieter has broken diet restrictions and gorged. Those with bulimia have repeated episodes of overeating, followed by compensatory vomiting, laxative use, fasting, or excessive exercise. Most binge purge eaters are women in their late teens or early 20s. They eat the way some people with alcoholism drink, in spurts, sometimes influenced by friends who are binging, preoccupied with food, craving sweet and high-fat foods, and fearful of becoming overweight, people with bulimia experience bouts of depression and anxiety, most severe during and following binges. About half of those with anorexia also display the binge purge depression symptoms of bulimia. Wait, did I say that right? I hope so. Unlike anorexia, bulimia is marked by weight fluctuations within or above normal ranges, making the condition easy to hide. Eating disorders do not provide a telltale sign of childhood sexual abuse. Families may provide a fertile ground for the growth of eating disorders in another way, however. Mothers of girls with eating disorders are often themselves often are themselves often focused on their own weight and on their daughter's weight and appearance. The families of bulimia patients have a higher than usual incidence of childhood obesity and negative self-evaluation. Anorexia patients also tend to have low self-evaluations and often come from families that are competitive, high-achieving, and protective. Sufferers set perfectionist standards fret about falling short of expectations and are intensely concerned with how others perceive them. Some of these factors also predict teen boys' pursuit of unrealistic masculinity, masculinity. Genetics, too, may influence susceptibility to eating disorders. If twins are identical rather than fraternal, the chances of the twin other twins sharing the disorder are somewhat greater. Evolution may have predisposed such genes, suggests Shan Gusinger. Faced with famine, our ancestors who denied their starvation and became hyperactive rather than hunkering down may have been more likely to search for food. There is, however, a cultural explanation for the fact that anorexia and bulimia occur mostly in women and mostly in weight-conscious cultures. Body ideals vary across culture and time. In India, women students rate their ideals as close as their actual shape. In much of Africa, where thinness can signal poverty, aids in hunger, and the prosperous are plump. Bigger is better. 
In Western cultures, however, the rise in eating disorders over the last five fifty years have coincided with a dramatic increase in women having a poor body image. According to a recent analysis of 222 studies of 141,000 people, other researchers confirm that those vulnerable to eating disorders are those who most idealize thinness and have the greatest body dissatisfaction. Not surprisingly, those people are most often women. In one national survey, nearly one half of the U of U.S. women reporting feeling negative about their appearance and preoccupied with being or becoming overweight. And in turn of the in the turn of the century, British survey of the three thousand five hundred bank and university staff, men were more likely to be to be emphasized overweight, and women were more likely to perceive themselves as overweight. Similar gender differences appeared in an as overweight. If I said underweight on accident, similar gender differences appeared in an experiment led by Barbara Fredrickson who had University of Michigan men and women put on a sweater or a swimsuit and complete a math test while alone in the changing room. For the women, but not the men, wearing the swimsuit triggered self-consciousness and shame that disrupted their math performance. In one inform- informal survey, with 60,000 respondents, 9 in 10 women said that they would rather have a perfect body than have a mate with a perfect body. 6 out of 10 men preferred the reverse. Part of the cultural pressure is surely transmitted by the thin ideal, exemplified in fashion magazines, advertisements, and even in some toys. What do you suppose happens when young women repeatedly encounter doctored magazine images of fashion models who appear to be unnaturally thin? Eric Stice and Heather Shaw and Heidi Posovac and colleagues reported that women often feel ashamed, depressed, and dissatisfied with their own bodies, the very attitudes that predispose eating disorders. When Streis and his colleagues gave some adolescent girls a 15-month subscription to a teen fashion magazine, vulnerable girls who were already dissatisfied, idealizing thinness and lacking social support, exhibited increased body dissatisfaction and eating disorder. Uh, tendencies. But even ultra-thin models do not reflect the impossible standard of the classic Barbie doll. Adjusted to a height of 5 feet 7 inches, her 32, 16, 29 figure in centimeters, 82 busts, 41 waist, and 73 hips, defines a body shape approximated by fewer than 1 in 100,000 women. It seems clear that the sickness of today's eating disorders lies not just within the victims, but also within our weight-obsessed culture. A culture that says, in countless ways, fat is bad. That motivates millions of women to be always dieting. And that encourages eating binges by pressuring women to live in a constant state of semi-starvation. As compelling as our biological motives are, eating behavior is clearly also affected by psychological and socio-social-cultural factors. Wow.
That was a lot. Oh, it's been half an hour. Is it still even going? Yeah, it is. Okay. Let me see how many pages I've done. Okay. Hmm. <laughs> Not a lot at all. It's been... Oh, wait. Maybe it's been more than I thought. Okay. Oh, well. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Okay. I think... Are we gonna stop here? We'll stop here for today. Anyways, bye!